Hey, this is John Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Word of Life Church in the nation's capital. I want to personally thank you for taking time out to listen to our podcast today. It's our prayer that you're inspired and that your life is changed for the better while listening. So go ahead, enjoy today's message. I'm going to read uh, today from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verse 14. You can follow me on the screen. If you have it on your phone or you brought a Bible with you, then uh, you can follow me in this. This is a parable. It says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, everyone say a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who also had the two talents came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground here you have what is yours. But his master answered him and said, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to get into our life and penetrate, bring supernatural change from the inside out. So, God, I pray for a fresh anointing in this service. It wouldn't be just a second message on Sunday morning, but, Lord God, this would be like the first time. There'd be a prophetic edge. Holy Spirit, you'd breathe all over it. God, that you would you would make it come to life in the hearts of every person that's in the room and those that are watching online. Lord God, those that are watching on YouTube. Lord God, we just pray that you would make this relevant alive, Lord God, and powerful for where we're at right here, right now, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, I grew up in, well, I grew up in Australia, but I got saved in Australia and then moved with a family to Whangarei in New Zealand. It's a very small town, I think, back then. 
had like 30,000 people. And I was with this family and we helped with the church there, Wangarei Praise Fellowship. And uh, Pastor Don McDonnell Sr. was the lead pastor and he loved to preach from this verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be always with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Every Sunday, pretty much, Pastor Don would talk from this passage of Scripture. Any moment now, we may not even make it out of this service. There's going to be a shout. There's going to be a, 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 a trumpet blast. We're, we're going out of here. We're going to be caught up together in the clouds as a, as a word of encouragement. But I want to be honest with you. Uh, I didn't really find anything encouraging back then about this passage of Scripture. Because all about, we may not even make it out of the service. In the twinkling of an eye, we are gone. And there are lots of songs. I remember a song by Larry Norman, and it was like, don't be left behind. It was talking about two people in the field, one left, one standing still. Uh, a husband and wife in bed, one gone, the, the other left behind. And the song just multiplied over and over again. Don't let get left behind. Don't get left behind. Don't get left behind. I was a brand new Christian. I was terrified of getting left behind. In fact, I was pretty much convinced if there's two of us together, you're going, I'm getting left behind. Because I, I was struggling to make that change from being far away from God to close with God. I had a bad temper. I was a chef by trade. And with my bad temper, fitted in perfectly to the chef kingdom. Make Gordon Ramsay look like, like he was playing with children. I, I, I remember throwing pots and throwing pans and, and yelling at waitresses and yelling. And, and, and so I'm trying to come. I know that's not Christian behavior. I was smoking two packets of cigarettes a day. I was trying to give up cigarette smoking. I was trying to stop cussing. I was trying to stop doing a whole heap of things. And so I'm in this battleground of trying to break out. Every week I'm hearing, we not make, make it up. Do, 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 shout from there. I was convinced I was staying behind. I didn't find anything comforting out of those words. But the context of this word comfort is a context of encouragement. It, it, it is pretty much written that comfort each other with these words to, to comfort the disturbed. In, in other words, in this culture, in Paul's addressing, people in the church that were expecting Jesus to come back in their lifetime and people had died and so they were wondering, what happens with them? If they've died, will they miss this this taking away, this rapture, will they, will they miss this second coming? And so Paul was writing them to encourage them, listen, uh, I, I want to, don't, don't, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Those of us that are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, but you are going to see your loved ones. You're going to go and see those that have gone before you. And so we are grieving people we've lost, but we don't grieve like people who have no hope. We grieve as people who have great hope. And so he's saying, listen, I know your mom and dad or your brothers or sisters or your husband or your wife has gone to be with the Lord, but I want you to comfort each other with these words. They're not going to miss the second coming. 
The context of the encouragement is also to disturb the comfortable. It's to tell us that we better be ready. There's going to be a shout. There's, there's going to be a, 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 a take a get our lives ready. These words are supposed to be there to encourage us. You know, doctors will use words to encourage us. They're about to inflict pain on our body and they'll use words like, you, you'll, you'll, you'll experience a slight prick. Or they'll use words like, uh, you'll feel a little bit of pressure. Or you might feel, experience a little bit of discomfort. You know when doctors break those. I went to a doctor once and he told me outright, listen, I'm about to do this and you're going to feel incredible pain. And I remember thinking to myself, no, like doctors don't use the P word. They don't use pain. Like this is not a prick, discomfort or pressure. This is pain. So bracing for, and so when Paul's here, he's just saying, hey, listen, I'm trying to encourage you guys. I'm trying to warn you guys that you need to be ready. Last week, we began our series looking at three rapture ready parables, three parables that are in the Olivet Discourse that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 25. Now, for those that weren't here last week, let me give you some context. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is talking about the religious leaders of the day to his disciples. Now, this is the Passion Week. So Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, but it's in that week. And so he is dealing with the religious leaders and he says to the disciples, listen, I want you to do as they say, but don't do as they do, which is very unusual. I want you to do as they say. They're teaching the laws of Moses, do that. But they've added to the word all these external religious behaviors to make themselves look more holy than you, to make themselves look more spiritual than you, to, to, to puff themselves up and make themselves look more important than everybody else. I don't want you to do, do that. I don't, I don't want you to live like that. I don't want you to put on a facade. I want you to be genuine. So I want you to do as they say, but I don't want you to do as they do. Don't put high value on external religious behaviors. Then it goes into chapter 24. As they go into chapter 24, they're leaving the temple and the disciples, I'm not sure whether they're trying to lighten the mood or whatever, but they they sort of get to this like, Jesus, hey, look at the temples. And as Jesus had just judged the religious people, he technically judges the temple because he says, this is not going to exist. Every stone on this beautiful building, as magnificent as it looks, all these wonderful, you know, buildings that have been built that we look and we see how amazing they are, they are only temporal. They are not going to last. This beautiful temple looks spectacular, but it's only temporal. It's all coming down. And we know that in 70 AD, those temples were pulled down and destroyed. And it reminds us, while religious external things that the Pharisees had, Jesus referred to them as whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. In other words, they they prettied up the outside of their life, but on on the inside, it was full of death and decay and destruction. And so he judges that, but then he says about this temple that it's only temporal. Why? Because buildings have ex- no, ex- they may have external value, but they don't have any eternal value. They may look great, but they are not here for 
eternity. The, literally what happens in the church lasts for eternity, but the building itself is not about to be there for eternity. In John uh, Matthew 25, Jesus then goes into three parables. We looked at one last week. And in these parables, Jesus is conveying eternal information in a, in a language that pretty much everybody in his audience would understand. So he wasn't trying to be doctrinal or religious or impressed. He just told stories, told a story about uh, some virgins, some people getting married. He, he talked about uh, a story about, which we'll look at today, some servants. He talked about shepherds. All these stories would be things that they would clearly understand. Last week, we spoke about uh, the parable of the virgins. Now, the virgins are the bridal party. Now, the, the bride is the church. We are, the bride is the church. The bride is the church global, the church generational, since it was birthed 2,000 years ago, every generation, and the church local. In other words, there are lots of churches in the DMV, but all the churches make up the church. You and I as individuals, we are the virgins in the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And as the virgins, we spoke about this last week, our responsibility is to get the bride ready for the bridegroom when he comes back. Now, that whole parable was something that the people in his audience would understand completely because a lot of those analogies were things that they were were doing. Weddings today uh, are very, 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 very different. Um, when I lived in New Zealand, we had this tradition and every state and country and people group have a tradition like this differently, but, it, but our tradition was pretty much to terrorize the groom. And we'd inflict some, we'd have what they call a bachelor's party, and then we would, we would inflict, like I remember uh, Jonathan Osler, we strapped him, we strapped him to a chair, to a seat, then we put him in the back of a, of a, of a truck, of a utility truck, and then we took him through a car wash because we thought he needed to get cleaned up for the wedding. Um, his father didn't think that was funny. I thought it was hilarious at the time. His father was not happy. Uh, we did a lot of really evil things to people. There was one guy in our church named David Wilkerson, and David was terrified of a bachelor's party. So he's pretty much saying to us, hey, I don't want one. Don't do anything. Don't plan anything. I'm good. We're just going to get married. Don't want to do any of that. He was terrified of what we would do. I don't blame him. It was a little intimidating. And, but I like to be told no and only see the word no as a stepping stone to yes. And so I called his boss. He worked at this clothing store downtown and I called his boss. It's like a Nordstrom type thing. And I called his boss and said, hey, listen, David's getting married this weekend. We're trying to have a bachelor's party for him and he doesn't want to have it. And so what we thought we'd come and collect him from work uh, is that okay with you? And the boss is like, I think that's amazing. He said, why don't you come in half an hour before the shop closes and grab him because he won't be expecting it and then take him out? I was like, that sounds like the Lord. And 
So like about four or five of us, we got into the store at the front, got a signal from the boss, and then we started crawling on our hands and knees through the store to where David was working. And then we popped out from behind the clothing and he's like, I'm at work, I'm at work. Like, yeah, we don't care. And we grabbed him and we, we, we roped him up and we picked him up in the air and we carried him out, you know, telling everybody in the store who was buying clothes, he's getting married. We're just going to go and celebrate. He's screaming like a stuck pig. And then all the customers are like, Ooh-hoo! how many people are glad that I wasn't around when you got married? <laughs> so weddings were different in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, the, the, it was often an arranged marriage and the, the, when, it, when they got betrothed, when they got engaged, it was a sign of we are getting married here and then the groom would go away and prepare a place. And when that preparation was done, the groom would come back and the bride needed to be ready for the groom. And the virgin's responsibility was to make sure when the bride came back, because they didn't know the day or the hour when he would come back, the bridesmaid's responsibility was to make sure, the virgin's responsibility was to make sure that the bride was ready for the groom. This is the church's responsibility, to make sure that the bride is ready for the groom, who is Jesus Christ, when he comes back. Because we've learned two things from these passages of Scripture. Number one, no one knows the day, and number two, you better be ready. No one knows the day or the hour, and ready or not, here he comes. They are the two things. And Jesus has called us to occupy, to work, to prepare a place until he comes back. So in rapture readiness parable number one, we talked about don't worry about being right. There's a whole heap of teaching on the end times and people are, you know, sometimes splitting hairs over the meaning of a passage of scripture. It seems I've been saved 40 years and it seemed to me that every time something happened in the Middle East, an end time preacher would come out and have a new take on when it was going to happen. Uh, Last week, I gave a whole heap of dates on when people said Jesus would return. There's a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Coming Back in 1988. Huge seller in 87. Didn't do great in 89. And, and, And that's and then a lot of, lot of, lot of men, uh, Pastor Barry Smith, who was an amazing man of God, a man of unbelievable integrity, of godliness. You can't fault him. But he had multiple predictions, multiple predictions when Jesus would return. I think the, the most recent was the year 2000. Now, Pastor Barry's gone to heaven since then. And so technically for him, the rapture has already come. Because he's in heaven. He's a, he's a part of those who are asleep in Christ. The dead will rise first. He's a part, he's a part of that. And, and the reality is that it doesn't matter that they were wrong because what they were doing is they were getting their heart ready. I don't think God's judging them because they got a date wrong because God himself said no one knows the day or the hour. And if it was important to know the day and the hour, he would have made it clear and he wouldn't have told us no one's going to know. So sometimes we split hairs, but what is more important than being right is making sure that you are ready. Live with awareness. Don't let distractions steal your focus. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 says, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father 
only. And he goes on to say that the second coming is going to be like the days of Noah. There's going to be warning signs. There's going to be, we're going to stir the church up to say, hey, get ready. And the reality is our responsibility is to be ready. You need to live ready. Don't let the mundane cycle of life or routine events of history rob your expectation. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. There's going to be a lot of things that look like he's coming now and look like he's coming then. Don't let the mundane things of life lull you into a sense of false security where you say, well, he hasn't come yet. So maybe I'll get away with it. Live with a sense of anticipation. Don't get lulled into false security. Live with expectation. Don't take his delay as an excuse to live your own way. Don't say the master is delayed, therefore I can just do whatever I want to do. So don't worry about being right. Worry about being ready. Don't worry about being right. Worry about being faithful. That's what I want to talk about today. Rapture readiness, parable number two, the parable of the three servants, which we read earlier. So first, remember this. No one knows the hour or the day. It says here in verse 14, for it'd be like a man going on a journey. Now, this is similar to the first parable of the virgins. In the first parable, the groom goes away and prepares a place. In the second parable, the master of the house leaves on a journey and in both these parables, the one who is leaving is Jesus. Now, now remember, this is in the Passion Week. So Jesus hasn't even left for the first time yet. But he's letting them know the cross is coming, resurrection is coming, ascension is coming, Holy Spirit is coming, the Master, I'm going away on a journey, but I'm going to come back. Now, the whole concept of a Journey. if I say to you, I'm going to go on a journey, you anticipate there's going to be a return. If I say I'm moving to England, heaven forbid. One second. It was just a joke. I have no desire to go there. No, truly. The Australians left there 200 years ago. We were happy. I, yeah, I would have paid to get on that boat. Anyway, how many of you know never tell God never? How many, how many of you ever say, I'll never do that, and then God gets you to do it? But it doesn't work in reverse. I've been telling God I never want billionaires in our church, but that's not ever happened. I'm still trying to convince him to send some. But if I say I'm going to go on a journey to England, you expect me to come back. So when Jesus said, listen, I'm going to go, but I'm not going forever. I'm going to go on a journey. There's a level of anticipation he's coming back, Acts chapter 1. And when he, Jesus, had said these things as the disciples were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back. 
the word of encouragement to the church at Ephesus is that Jesus is coming back. Passionately await his return, but Jesus is coming back. Is there anybody in the house that Jesus, excited that Jesus is coming back? Like the parable of the virgins, this parable is about individual Christians within the church. So he's not addressing church is, he's addressing people in the church that make up the church global. And so these people can be in any individual church. He called his servants and he trusted them his property. Now in the last parable, the virgins were entrusted to look after the bride. And in this parable, the servants are entrusted to look after the master's property. So the condition of the church is in our hands and not just in the hands of leadership, but it is in the hands of all of us. Every one of us, if you're born again, if you're saved, if you're a child of God, the church of Jesus Christ has been left in your hands. Now, the enemy is going to always try to discourage you from being involved in the church. Right now, there is an onslaught. I see it everywhere, from documentaries on TV to articles uh, that are, you know, on online. And pretty much every article I've read and every documentary I've listened to has a line of thought. It has an agenda. And the agenda is not to build the church. The agenda is to pull the church down. And they create conversations in that agenda that they're trying to get duplicated through other media outlets that don't think about it. There's some unbelievably, listen, let me encourage you before you go listening to something and then taking on like it's true. I have discovered that there is unbelievably lazy journalism where journalists will just quote another journalist without actually doing their own research to find out whether it's true. They'll make statements like they're true and they're absolutely false. I have very, very low confidence in the media. Why? Because every time I've been interviewed by the media or a story has been in there, by the, even when, back when I was a chef, they've never, ever reported the truth. There was always fabrications or out like lies in the report. And so if you want... If we, we, we've got to read between the lines and try to find out what the conversation is. And there is a conversation happening in the world right now that is spearheaded to make sure that you and I have a mentality that we think the church should be small. And I want to encourage you, we've got to dream big dreams. I, I don't believe that God has an issue with small churches but I believe that God wants some churches to be huge. God wants some churches to be massive, that God wants some churches to have major impact. Now, I know the narrative is you can't trust a leader in a mega church because they have some, you know, funkiness in, in, in their life. Listen, I've met pastors of tiny churches that have the exact same amount of funkiness in their life. It's got nothing to do with the size of the church. It's got everything to do with the size of the heart of the pastor. I've heard people say, well, you know, we've only got 50 in our church, but we're, but." but I'd rather have 50 holy people in our church than the 1,000 unholy people in your church. 
That is such a hypocritical religious, the 50, how do you know the 50 people in your church are all holy? You following them around every day? You're in their house watching what they're doing. You following them? You got a tape recorder, a video camera. They're all holy, none of them. None of them are messed up. Jesus said there are 10 virgins, five are wise, five are foolish. Even in 10, they're split 50-50 between foolish and wise. So what makes you think that the 50 in your church are all fantastic? Could be 25-25. If it's 25-25 and we're 1,000 and it's 500-500, just chucking it out there. We, we don't want to get into that. I don't want to get into judging other churches. I don't want to get into judging other Christians. Our responsibility is not to worry what everybody else is doing. Our responsibility is to worry what we're doing and what we're doing in the house that God has given us. Let's not criticize the church down the road or the pastor around the corner. That, 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 I don't want that to be our character or nature. We should be celebrating churches. We should be celebrating the kingdom of God. We should be celebrating people in the house of God. I believe that God wants his church to be big, that the enemy definitely wants to keep the church broke. If the, if the devil could keep us all poor, if we're all just in poverty, he'd be like, woohoo! Because it takes money to get things done. The book of Ecclesiastes says, money answers all things. There's never a lack of vision. There's just a lack of finance. And so the devil knows if I can hold the finance from you and get you thinking small, then you can never fulfill the vision. And if we don't fulfill the vision, the kingdom can't advance. There's only one person who benefits from you being broke, and that's the devil. No one else in your world benefits from you being broke. You're like, well, you believe in prosperity. You better believe I believe in prosperity. Why? Because Jesus came to bring good news to the poor. And the good news to the poor is you don't have to be poor. Now, all prosperity is relative. The more prosperity you have, the more relatives you'll have. But if you, if you have no food, you're not eating every day, then prosperity to you is a meal. If you're eating one meal a day, then prosperity to you is three a day. If you're eating three meals a day, then prosperity for you is three meals a day and a McDonald's soft serve cone. If you've got three meals a day and a McDonald's soft serve cone, prosperity for you is to help somebody else have a meal. Our responsibility is to be blessed so we can be a blessing. That's God's plan. Be blessed so we could be a blessing. We're not supposed to be a reservoir of finance. We're supposed to be a, 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 a river of finance. Now, am I saying that I believe the prosperity message for me is I get filthy rich and you stay poor? That's not the prosperity message. The prosperity message is not you give money and then you're going to become a millionaire. No, you've got to work. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. And so you've got to work, you've got to save, you've got to plan, you've got to invest, you've got to be smart. There's a whole heap of things that we need to do. But I'm here to tell you, poverty has never helped anyone. And the church used to have a poverty mentality. Back in the day in Australia, when people would bless the missionaries in Papua New Guinea, you know what they would do? They would send the missionaries in Papua New Guinea their used tea bags. They would have a cup of tea at home. 
They would squeeze out the tea bag. They would let it dry out. And then out of their heart of generosity and bigness, they would send the used tea bags to the missionaries overseas so they could use them again. I don't know about you, I don't want a church that thinks that's small. I don't want a church that thinks that microscopic. I want a church that if you're going to bless somebody, you don't give them a used tea bag, you buy a whole box of new tea bags and you send that over to them or whatever it is that you learn how to bless people. The devil wants to keep the church silent. He wants to intimidate you so you are terrified to talk about church or talk about the gospel. And every other agenda in society today takes priority. They have whole months dedicated to other agendas. But when it comes to us, we've got to be quiet, sit down and shut up. And I want to tell you, Jesus has not called us to be quiet. He's called us to be salt. He's called us to be light. He's called us to make a difference. The devil wants to keep the church intimidated. He wants, the, he wants to keep the church divided. He wants to have five wise and five foolish virgins. He wants the pastor to do everything and the church to do nothing. But that's not how God's designed the church. God has left his kingdom on earth in our hands. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to a, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He had received the five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he had made five talents more. So also he had the two talents, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. There are three wents in this passage. The master went away, two servants went immediately and traded, and one servant went immediately and dug. The master went away. He gives and he goes and he leaves the responsibility in our hands. He gives and he goes and he leaves the responsibility in our hands. Jesus has given and he's gone and he's left the responsibility in our hands. When we stand before him like these servants stood before the master and we give an account on what we did with our life, he's going to take into account what he has given us. So it's important for us to remember what he has given us so when he comes back, we can give an account for that giving to us. Does that make sense? So he gave us life. The fact that you're here today means that he's given you life. You you got breath in your lungs. You are alive. He's given you today. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice. I will be glad in it. Jesus has given us the gift of time. But also he has given us the great commission. He said, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the earth. I want you to baptize them. I want you to make disciples of all nations. So not only has he given you life, but he gave you a command. I want you to go into all the world and I want you to change it. Then he gave us the power of the Holy Spirit. 
He said, look, I know that you don't have a lot of strength. He's talking to Peter and the disciples that had already bailed. Now he's telling them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And they're just a few weeks away where they were denying Jesus and leaving. So he's like, I know it's not going to happen in your strength. So I am going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And so wait on me until you are endured with power. So God doesn't expect you to go into the world in your own power. He said, I'll fill you with dunamis, dynamite, explosive power. So you're not going out and your strength you're going out in his strength so God has given you the great commission and then God gave you power he also when he gave you the Holy Spirit gave you the fruit of the Holy Spirit by giving you the fruit of the Holy Spirit he would take you away from some of your nasty attitudes and make you nice I am a nicer person today than I was before I got saved not because I'm awesome, but it's because of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That when you are doing something that doesn't live up to that fruit, he can convict you. And you go, oh, okay. And so I have a better personality. I think I'm a better person to be around today. Not because I'm awesome, but because he is. And he gave me the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So I look back at pre-Jesus John Morgan and I'm like, oh, yeah, he was a jerk. Even John Morgan for a few years after Jesus, still a jerk. But after 40 years of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, less a jerk. I try to be less jerky. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit, so he gave us life. He gave us the commission. He gave us the power of the Holy Spirit. He gave us the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the gifts of the Holy Spirit so we can minister to people in faith and see miracles happen. That can flow out of every one of you. The gifts of the Holy Spirit aren't reserved for pulpit ministries. They are supposed to be used every day by every one of us. They don't even need to be weird. They can just flow out of us normally. Then he gave us the ascension gifts. In Ephesians, the gift of, of the apostle, the gift of the prophet, the gift of the evangelist, the gift of the, uh, the, the teacher and the pastor. He gave us what to do to train up the church to do the work of the ministry. The, the church is never supposed to be that leadership does all the ministry. Back in the day when they were sending used tea bags to missionaries, the church would come and do nothing. The pastor did everything. The pastor and his wife set the chairs out. The pastor and the wife cleaned the toilets. The pastor and his wife did everything. They cleaned the building. They mowed the yard. They did everything. They, they, they did all the work and the saints turned up and they did nothing except watch all the things that the pastor had done and then they just complain. They just criticize and complain. But that's, the church had a revelation. That's not how we grow. That's a great way to keep everything small. But that's not how we grow, and that's not how we get rewarded. You're not going to get a good, well done, good and faithful servant for sitting down and watching somebody else do all the work. He's not going to go, well done, good and faithful watcher of somebody else's good and faithful serving. He's going to go, well done, good and faithful servant if you've served. And so one of the great revelations in the church is the fact that the body is called to be doing the work of the ministry. The virgins are called to build uh, a preparation for the bridegroom and the wise servants are supposed to do something until the master comes back. 
In Romans chapter 12, it talks about giving us motivational gifts, the hard wiring of our personality. There's a parts of how you think and feel that are God designed according to Romans chapter 12. So you could use that for a perfect fit into the house of God. We're doing our Life Connect today over a two-week period. And one of the things that we do in Life Connect is help you discover you and your strengths and then try to help you find somewhere in ministry that'll fit your personality, that'll be a perfect fit. And so there's some areas that you would be great in and some areas that you'd be terrible in. There's some areas I'd be great in. I, I am great in an emergency. In a crisis, I'm your man. You want me in your court. Long-term problem, you don't want me anywhere near it. I'm likely to make that sucker worse just by being close to it. And so you've got to know your strengths and your weaknesses and find your fit and be who God has called you to be. And then he's given us assignments. He handed out five talents. He handed out two talents. He handed out one talent, each according to what? That person's ability. So God's not asking you to be the person sitting beside you. God's not asking me to be Pastor Russell. God is definitely not asking me to be one of these girls that sing on the stage. There'd be nothing that would clear our church out quicker than having me as a lead singer on the stage. I am, for all accounts and purposes, a terrible singer. I am convinced that when I worship in church, that God puts me on mute. And the angels would say, hey, 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 whoa. You said joyful noise. And God would say, nothing joyful about that noise. <laughs> so you gotta know where you fit. What, what, what? And so God has given us all these, God has given us gifts. And then one day when we stand before him, he's gonna go, what did you do with all of that that I gave you? And we're not going to be able to go, oh, nothing. Because it wasn't me, it was you. It's not me, it's the Lord. And have you ever heard people say that? Oh, we can do nothing. We can do absolutely nothing. It's just all the Lord. That, that's, that, that sounds spiritual, but that's, that's Matthew 23 stuff. It sounds good, but it's a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. Because we can do something. Why? Because God gave us gifts. Now, you can't do it without those gifts, but he gave you the gifts. And he gave it to you to do something. He didn't give you the gifts so he could sit back and go, don't do anything with the gifts. I'm going to do everything for you. No, he gave you gifts to do the work of the ministry. Two servants went immediately to work. We have to occupy until Jesus comes back. Now, somebody said this once. They said, don't be so busy doing the work of the Lord that you spend no time with the Lord of the work. And while I believe that in essence is true, that, that we've got to be worshipers of God, I don't believe it's an either or thing. I believe in the genius of the and. So I believe that we need to worship the Lord of the work. We need to be worshipers of God. And as worshipers, there's a level of instant gratification because we feel his presence, we feel his touch. I love being, in, anybody else like that? You love being in the presence of God. Anybody like that? Come on Wednesday nights as we enter into the presence of God, God showing up. I, I, I love those moments. I'm a, I'm a worshiper. 
I, I spent most of last Wednesday, I don't think our team were too happy because I like loud music in my office, but I spent most of last Wednesday just worshiping and preparing for Wednesday night that we come together in the, I, I love it. There's an instant gratification that comes when God's presence is there. But when you do the work of the Lord, there's eternal reward. And so there's instant gratification in his presence, but there's eternal reward by doing the work of the Lord. The third servant went immediately and dug a hole and buried his talent. We're talking about this in staff the other day, and Pastor Russell was saying how, you know, digging a hole is a lot of work. Like, it's not like digging a hole is no work. If you ever dug a hole, it's work. But he dug a hole, he did the work, what was he doing? He was just doing the wrong work. He's putting his energy into the wrong thing. And the energy that he was putting into was to be able to build a platform for his excuse. And so he was going to bury his talent. Digging a hole and burying the talent is an action to play it safe and take absolutely no risk. I don't want to risk anything with this talent. I'm digging a hole. I'm putting it in the ground. I know where it is. I'm covering it up. Put some grass over it. A couple of lilies. It looks really good, but I know know where it is. X marks the spot. Got a little treasure map in my pocket. I better go and and get it. Playing it safe. God hasn't called us to play it safe, but everyone wants us to dig a hole. When Pastor Kova built this auditorium, the church used to be in the chapel was the auditorium. And when Pastor Kova was building this, Multiple people came up to Pastor Kova and were like, why do you need to build a bigger auditorium? We should just stay here. This is fine. We don't need a bigger auditorium. Let's just stay here and not build another auditorium. Play it safe. Dig a hole. Bury the talent in the ground. We don't need to do anything. We're comfortable. We don't need to worry about anybody else. But he built this auditorium. When I took over the church, Pastor Anna and I got voted in to be lead pastors of the church in uh, August of 2021, and we got the responsibility of leading the house here. Then one of the things that we realized with our deacons and team was we needed to redo at least the bottom area. And so we carpeted, got rid of the old carpet. We, we got rid of the broken pews or broken pews everywhere. Got rid of, And we got the seats that you're sitting in right now. And people all are like, why do we need new pews? Those things have been faithful for 40 years. I actually had one lady write me an email who was watching online, who online said, you guys don't need new pews, just sit in the ones that you got. I thought it was so, how funny is that? You're watching online in the comfort of your house telling us that we should sit in broken pews. And when I mentioned that online the next week and offered her to send the pews to her house, she never responded. So obviously she was happy for you to sit in a broken pew, but wasn't happy to have them in her own house and get rid of her furniture. And so what is it? It's digging a hole and it's making it safe. But God hasn't called us to be hole diggers. He's called us to be able to take talents and multiply them greatly. So don't worry about being right, worry about being ready. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He had received the five talents, came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you've delivered to me five talents here. I've made five talents more. His master said to him, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
Now, the guy who came back with two got the exact same statement. So it didn't matter five or two, ten or four. They got the exact same statement. Well done. Well, you've done the mission. You've completed the mission. You are a good. Your heart is good. You are faithfulness. You, are, you have a willingness to multiply what you have been given. You are a servant. You have a servant's heart to do what I've asked you to do. I gave you, I gave you a little and you were faithful in the little. What, what God has given us may only be little, but it's always called to be multiplied. And if you're faithful in the little, God is going to give you much. God's going to give you much. Maybe you've been in church for a while and maybe you've tried to push your agenda. I've definitely seen this happen in church. I was just thinking about this the other day. Of how many, not here, but in times past, how many people have come up and said, hey, Pastor, God has given us the gift of prophecy. Are we able to prophesy in the church? Can you open a space for us in the worship service so we can prophesy in in, in church and I'm like well I don't know you and you've never done our life connect and you're not a member and I don't know your life whether you have any credibility or not so maybe if you're faithful in the little God could give you much and nine times out of ten you say that to somebody with that gift they leave because they, 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 they can't be faithful in the little they're just trying to do the big and if you just try to do the big your ministry will end up as little but if you do the little, everything will end up as big. And, 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 and the greatest gift that we have in the church is not to get up in front of people and prophesy. Preaching on Sunday is a small part of what I do. Russell playing keyboards, the other people that are here, Anna and doing the offering or communion, Levi, Levi up there who heads up our, our tech team. And Levi, you do an amazing job. Let's give Levi a great round of applause. Levi does more than just mix on or, or oversee that team on a Sunday in two services. He's here on Wednesday night. He's here for the school. He's here for graduations. He's here for funerals. He's here for weddings. He works his tail off. And so what you see on Sunday is just a little bit of the whole thing that happens all week. And that's why we need the church. God has given you gifts and talents and abilities and you're only ever going to hear the well done, good and faithful servant if you've been faithful over little and, and, and turn it into much so God can take what he's given you and give you even more. That's what eternity is about. God said, I gave you a little bit on earth and you turned it into much. Now I'm going to bless you back. And then in eternity, some of the things that we're going to do in eternity will blow your mind. I don't think we've got a full comprehension of eternity. I think most people think, I'm going to die, I'm going to stand in God's presence, and, go, and just worship. God's like, no, I gave you work to do on the earth to test your faithfulness, and then I'll reward you in eternity. My job as the pastor is not to condemn you or to put you down or to make you feel bad about yourself or, or, or feel deep. No, my job is to mobilize you so you can do the work that God has called you to do, that on judgment day, when you stand before him, the blood of Jesus Christ washes you from sin. So you have instant access, not because of your good works, but because of his blood. So you stand before God and God will go, what did you do with the time? What did you do with the talent? What did you do with the gifts? What did you do with 
the power? What did you do with the fruit? What did you do with all those things that I gave you, the, the opportunities? What did you do with all of that? And my responsibility, our leadership responsibility is that when you lay out what you do, that God will look at you and go, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in the little, but I am going to give you much. It's to be find your fit and do what God has called you to do. And you haven't been called to do what everybody else is called to do, but just be the best you that you could possibly be. Just be the best you. The worst thing for me would be there on judgment day and you rock up and God puts fire on all your works and there's no gold. There's no silver. There's no precious stones. You just spent all your life doing wood, hay, and straw and just sweeping up a pile of ash. I don't want that to happen because I know if that happens because I don't tell you the truth, on that day you're going to stare across eternity at me with fire in your eyes and you'll be like, I'm going to take you out and I've got eternity to find you. So we want to stand on that day where God himself says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Russell, you can bring the team up now. Let me finish this with this one thought. Don't let your excuse be bigger than your faithfulness. He also who had received the one talent. I'm not sure how many times you've read this passage. I encourage you to go and read it. Oh, it's loaded. This one scripture is loaded. He also had received the one talent came up for saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. I knew you. Isn't there a certain level of arrogance in that statement? I knew you. I, I know what you're about. I know, listen, anytime someone presumes on your motives, remember that presumption is what got us into this mess in the, same, in the first place. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were given the garden, the planet, and God just said, one tree, don't eat off it, you'll die. They presumed God's motives. Well, you don't want us to eat off that tree because you don't want us to be smart like you. You're greedy. You're holding out. You've only given us the entire garden and planet Earth and stopped us from eating from one tree. But their presumption on God's character created original sin. In this passage of Scripture, the presumption on the master's character causes them to dig a hole and bury their talent. I knew you. I knew you. I wonder where that servant was getting his information from. He certainly wasn't getting it from the other two servants because they did something with their talent. If he'd spoken to them about, hey, you guys work for the same master, what do you think about him? And they're like, well, he gave us these gifts and abilities, just reproduce it, it's highly likely he'll bless us back with it at the end, no guarantee, but that's sort of how his character is. And I wonder who he spoke to. I wonder if he went and hung out with the five foolish virgins who said, oh, we don't need to be ready. We don't need to take extra oil. This oil will do. 
You don't need to try too hard. You don't need to work. You don't need to volunteer. You don't, you don't need to serve anywhere. Come on, just the little bit of oil that you've got is going to do. I wonder where he got it. Be careful where you get your information. I knew you to be a hard man. So I was afraid. See what presumption does? I knew you to be hard. And the result of that was I was fearful and it creates a behavior. So I went and hid. It actually created a conversation before the behavior. I knew you to be a hard man. Here's a conversation. You want to reap where you don't sow. You want to gather where you scattered no seed. That's a conversation, which is not true. All of that conversation is false. You want to reap where you do not sow. Who gave him the talent? You want to gather where you scatter no seed. Who gave him the seed? So none of that's true. He believes a lie. So, so I, went and I went and hid your talent in the ground. And then he totally destroys his own argument when he goes, so here, have back what is yours. Do you see that, how that works? I knew you. You're a, you're a hard man. You want to reap where you do not sow. You want to gather where you scatter no seed. So I went and hid your talent in the ground, the talent in the ground. Here, have back what you gave me in the first place. Do you see it? You want to get back something you didn't give, so here's back what you gave. So nothing about what he said was true. He shot his own excuse in the face. Who told you you were naked? That's what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden when they hid. Well, we were, we were terrified. We were terrified of you, so we went and hid. Created a conversation, created a behavior, created them digging a hole and burying themselves behind a bush. And God said, who told you that? Who is speaking into your life, robbing you from being all God's created you to be? Who told you you were too old? Who told you you were too young? Who told you you had no value in the church? Who told you you were just a number, just show up, just show up whenever you want? Who told you that you couldn't serve in his kingdom? Who hurt you? Who disappointed you? Who let you down? Who robbed you from being all God created you to be? We're going to be ready. We're going to be ready. One day there's going to be a shout. One day there's going to be a trumpet blast. One day the dead in Christ are going to rise first and those of us that are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds in the air to be with the Lord. And on that day, at, 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 that, at, at, at a point, you know, I will stand before God and He'll ask us what we did with our life. As we contemplate that together before we wrap up this morning, can we stand?